listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. As a dad of four kids, three of whom can talk right now, It's fun and intriguing to watch your children grow and develop into their own personalities. And uh, and this is one of Julie and I's favorite conversations to just have where we talk about their similarities. A lot of our kids, um, they all have similarities, of course. There's a lot of crossover traits, but they're all very, very different at the same time. And we love watching that happen and seeing seeing it. To some degree, I believe God enjoys looking at us the same way as his children. Of course, he knows it all. He created us and nothing surprises him. But he still loves seeing us develop and mature into the person that he created us to be. But when I think about my kids and their different personalities, one of the ways this really comes out is when they have to learn how to do hard things. Right? Um, So we can start with Monroe. She hasn't had to do too many hard things in her life yet, which is good. She's a little girl, right? She's four years old. But she loves to pick up and clean around the house, help with Dawson, and and we're teaching her how to do those things. With Beckham and Paxson, both of them, probably the hardest thing that they have done in their life is one of the hardest things is learn how to ride a bike. And you can really see their different personalities in something like that too. For Beckham, my firstborn, He is um, Mr. Independent. I mean, this is the kid who told me when he was three, hey, Dad, thanks for raising me and teaching me about life. I'm good now. Um, And that's just always been the way he is. So with riding a bike, as soon as he figured out that this is going to be better and more fun, he had to learn it. And as emotional and, and as hard as it was, like he just kept getting on that bike, and he learned it in two days. With Paxton, he's a completely different personality. And he likes to do, he's the rule follower. He likes to do things that are safe. And so for him, it took not two days. It took more like two weeks to to really get the courage to get in there and for dad to take his hand off the seat and to conquer that fear of learning how to ride the bike. So we all process things differently. We all work through things differently. It's fascinating to see that as a parent with your kids. But may I just ask you, do you remember that far back when you learned how to ride a bike? You remember taking the training wheels off for the very first time. You know going into that, and if you didn't know this going into it, you find out very fast that you're going to fall. You're going to get hurt a little bit. You're going to cry a little bit to, to learn how to ride that bike. But it's worth it because riding that bike without training wheels, you can go so much faster. You can enjoy the experience to a full extent when you take the training wheels off. I barely remember it myself when I first took the training wheels off. I think I was just trying to keep up with my cousins. So I hopped on a bike. I vaguely remember going down a hill and crashing. But that's all I remember. It's all blurred away because I learned how to do it. And it was such a joy once I actually arrived at that state of learning how to enjoy the bike ride. Doing hard things in your faith can also be painful, but the fruit is so rewarding And it's so amazing and sweet. I share all of that to you to give you a hint of what we're going to see this morning in the book of Judges. This morning, I'm going to challenge all of us to do hard things in your faith. So please open up in your Bible with me to Judges chapter 4. We're going to be in two chapters today. And this sermon is different. I mean, we're doing it at a different time. Um, We're not going to read all the verses together. There's two full chapters here. And I also want to keep this sermon PG-13. So kids actually are actually free to go. If if any kids are still here. um, Yeah, I know. We we threw off the whole rhythm. So (laughs) you can go to your kids class. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Um, But yeah, we're walking through a very very violent story, actually. Uh, One of the most violent stories in the Bible. So Judges 4, the story of Deborah and Barak, and it's going to be seven things today. Seven things we can all learn from this story. So verse 1 starts the way they all start in Judges. 
once upon a time, the people again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we'll put up, put up our graph, right? This pretty much we could do this every single week. This is what happens. Ehud dies. The people, the, that's the judge, right, who, who ushered in the, the period of peace. The people rebelled. And this time you insert a new king who's going to oppress God's people. This time it's Jabin. Um, and, and if you notice in this text, it says Jabin, king of, king of Canaan, was brought in by God to judge his people. Now, Jabin's dirty work was done through his general, Sisera. Here's the villain of the story that we have here to work as we work through this. But he ruled with an iron fist. And specifically, he had 900 chariots of iron. So when Sisera took control, verse 3 says that he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So this guy is worse than King Eglon, who we saw last week. And chapter 5 fills in with even more dark color how awful Sisera was. He enslaved women. He did the worst things that you could imagine to those women. And this was a very wicked man. Now, Deborah was judging Israel at the time, and there weren't many leaders in the nation at all, but she was, was the primary one. And she would sit under a tree, and she had a tree named after herself, the Palm of Deborah, and the people would come up to her for judgment. So Israel at this point in their history is a nation state. They are a conquered, oppressed nation, but the judge is acting as the mediator. It's, uh, she's settling disputes, and this is a period of time, of, again, if you remember, everyone is doing that which is right in their own eyes, but you still had some semblance of order, and the judge was the de facto civil leader, the state leader. And in verse 6, she calls up Barak and says to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, and I will draw out Sisera to meet you by the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hands. So Deborah is a prophetess and a judge, and she calls Barak, and she says, in effect, this is what God has told you to do. You need to obey, and we need to do this. We need to go. And up to this point in the story, um, Barak, you, you can look at him and be like, what are you doing, man? Like, wh where are you at on this scene? Like, she says to him, go, and then he says, I will not go unless you go with me. And a lot of people read this chapter, and they're like, look at this guy. Like, what is his problem? Um, and you, you can take a very negative outlook on Barak, and I can see where people get that. You can also read verse 9, where Deborah says to him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And you take that and you say, well, wait, Barak still went. And he asked for her to come with him. So you could look at him as someone who just didn't step up and lead like a man. Or you could take the more optimistic view, which I myself hold, that takes this verse more, more along the lines of, he knows it's going to be tough. He knows he's not going to get the glory, but he's now ready to obey. And you can infer that from the passage. So I don't necessarily myself see Deborah as rebuking Barak, but simply telling him that though, look, you're not going to get the headlines for this, and I still want you to charge down this hill into the teeth of 900 chariots of iron, he still does it. And it's a more of a prophetic statement of what will happen not necessarily a verdict on his faith. So that's my view. You can have yours. But of course, it doesn't really matter because in verse 14, he does step out in courage and he charges his men into the heat of the battle. And not only does he do that, but he is on a, he's a man on the mission for the rest of this story. He's hunting down Sisera for the rest of this story. And his desire to take Deborah with him, I don't think is necessarily cowardly disobedience, but rather something that is done out of recognition and respect. Deborah is a godly woman, and she's very smart, she's wise, and it would be good to have her there. So she speaks God's words. So he's also recognizing that she's a leader. Now, 
having said all that, we've set this story up. Here's the first thing that we need to learn from this story. Number one today, women can and should lead from wisdom and character. And I can't help but think when you read this story, if, if you were to take this story and in, in our modern day, in our world today, if Hollywood or Disney or any, anyone really would make a movie out of this, they would 100% make Deborah into a warrior. She wouldn't just be smarter and wiser than the men all around her, but she would be better with the sword too. That's really just where we're at. Um, but notice in the actual story, Deborah doesn't lead the army with sword in hand. She specifically summoned Barak and recruited him to be the muscle. And this really shouldn't be controversial. Women are different than men. Men on average are made with more muscle mass. We have more bone density than women. And when our world tells us that women can do anything a man can do, or that, you know, for that matter, a man can be a woman if he wants to, our world tells us all kinds of crazy things, is what they are doing is they are devaluing and degrading the spectacular God-given differences that make women beautiful and precious. Modern-day feminism and I've actually specifically had to do a whole spin-off podcast on this topic in this point because there's so much to say here. Um, but it is modern-day feminism that tells women this lie that you can do anything a man can do. You can do it better. What they are doing is they are making women, in the end, more bitter and depressed and less happy than they ever have been. And if you're not aware of that, just go look up one of the hundreds of studies that have been done on this recently. Um, the, the overwhelming fact is feminism has been very cruel. Modern day feminism has been very cruel to, to women in the sense that it's telling them a lie. And one of the ways it tears down these women is by telling them that they are warriors. You can do everything a man can do. And men are incompetent. You can do it better. In the real world that God created, Women are not better fighters than men most of the time for a variety of reasons. But our world that is driven by our enemy who hates men and women who are both made in the image of God, our enemy wants to tear us down and divide us. And he's deceptive and he's crappy, crafty and he appears as an angel of light. He's that too, of course. <laughs> but what's his play? What is his play? Look how inept he is. You are better. And, and, and it's this self-centered, these lies. And when they, when they push this out on themselves, is what they're doing is they're saying, look, I don't need you, man. I don't need, I don't need anyone else in my life. And everyone loses. Everyone loses. The Bible always, always teaches that men and women are equal in value and dignity. We're both created in his image. We are both equal but different. And of course, women can do things that men can't do as well. Men can also do things that women can't do as well. God made us different, but equal. And I took a whole podcast on this, and I, I delved into this for, for 20 minutes. I'm going to stop there. But really, the reason why I had to do that podcast is because when you talk about Deborah as a leader in Israel at this time, a lot of people immediately start thinking about the whole issue of women in ministry today. It's, it's a hot-button issue. So this week on the Docs of Dialogue podcast, there's an episode that we released on Friday called Deborah, women, the Women in Ministry Question and Why It Matters. And if this is something that's intriguing to you, I go into it. It's a 25-minute podcast. We, we take a full look at it. So give that a listen. But what we can take away from Deborah is that women can and should serve in every way that they are gifted unless it's a role that's specifically given to men. Deborah was a prophet, prophetess. She was a judge slash ruler, but she wasn't a priest. In the Old Testament, that role was reserved specifically for men, ages 35 through 55, in the tribe of Levi. It was very specific. And today in the church, there is a role that is reserved specifically for men, and it's the role of an elder, someone who teaches with authority. 
And the New Testament makes it clear that the office of pastor is for qualified men. And that's not up to us to decide, even if we don't understand that, even if we want to do some mental gymnastics around that. Um, it would be putting your preferences above what the clear testimony and record of Scripture is teaching us to do anything other than God's way. And of course, this doesn't mean that women shouldn't speak in church. Um, you have Aquila and Priscilla, right? Priscilla taught in some capacity in the church. You, you have Yodia and Syntyche in the New Testament. There's a lot of different places throughout the New Testament where we see women speaking in church. 1 Corinthians 11 assumes that a woman will be speaking to the church. You have an issue there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where specifically the women are told to keep silent, and that is in the context in that chapter of the abuse of prophecy and the abuse of tongues going on in the Corinthian church. And it was up to the men who were the elders of that church to speak with authority and to, and to safeguard the doctrine of the church. So that was a specific issue in the Corinthian church. You also have the chapter 1 Timothy 2 that again says that in black and white, Women are not to teach and have authority in the church. And the big question is, well, well, what does that, you know, does, does that mean that women can't speak at all? We've even had people in our church ask the same thing because at our church here, we have women who read scripture. We have women who will share testimony. We even have women who will actually look at the truth of a song and make, make an application and say, look, this is something that I've been challenged with and actually encourage us to look to the Lord. Is that, does that fit in the New Testament? Of course our elders of our church have been combed through Scripture. We, we absolutely want to be faithful to what God teaches. And when you look at it, the Bible can't be saying there that women should never speak at all because that would be inconsistent with so much of Scripture. So what does it mean not to teach and have authority? Clearly, those two words... Uh, well, I did a podcast on it for 25 minutes. You can go and listen to that. But is what it is communicating is women are not to have the role of being the teaching authority in the church where they preach from the pulpit. They should not be the pastor. I didn't make that rule. That, that's God. And when, and when Paul talks about it in Romans, he goes all the way back to the order of creation. So this isn't just a Corinthian church issue. This is a very important thing to be faithful to God's plan and God's way. It matters for a variety of reasons. We shouldn't be hesitant. We, sh we should actually equip women. We should encourage them. And we should absolutely allow women to serve in every single way that they are gifted to serve. The only time we say you should not do something is if God specifically says, no, the office of a pastor to teach with authority, that's reserved for a man. God has, God has given different roles to men and women. He's given men the role to be the leaders of their home and to be the ruling authority in the church. That is his way. That is not our way, and his ways are higher than our ways. It has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with equality. It's simply two distinct, uniquely gifted people who have different roles. And here's really why it's so important. I probably said more than I was planning on saying for that. Um, gave you half the podcast, but there's still a lot more in that podcast. But there's multiple reasons why being faithful and obedient to God matters, of course, but what's really at stake here, if you really actually pull it back down to what, what's really going on at the heart level, why is it so important to understand this? Your value as a human being does not rest in what you do. Do you hear that? This is what the world has lost. When we make titles and positions, all of that's so important. Your value does not rest in what you do what you can or cannot do, your value is in who you are as an image bearer of God. Satan lies, and our world is suffocated by this lie, and it's wreaking havoc even in the church today. But Deborah led through wisdom and character, and that's what God wants all of us to learn. God is the one who works through you to bring glory to his name and good into our world. And if we truly believe that who we are as image bearers of God, if you are abiding in Christ, 
that's where your value is. We're not going to make a big, huge issue out of the title and the position. Some people, would they would never say this, but they actually believe the president of the United States is more valuable than a stay-at-home mom simply because of what he does. But if you actually step back and listen to what they're saying, I have to say, who's the one who's being discriminate there? Your value is not tied to what you can or cannot do. Your value in God's eyes doesn't have anything to do with that. It's who you are. And who, if you're saved today, and if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's who you are in Christ. You were made in the image of God, and we have to value all human life. So church, please listen to this. You don't need to believe the lies the world tells you. You don't have to be afraid to not offend people. There's nothing wrong with just simply saying, look, I don't understand all the reasons why, but this is, this is the way God has laid it out, and I'm going to believe that. I'm going to obey that. You don't have to erase your feminine qualities to be successful, like the world teaches right now. If you're a woman, God made you to be a woman, and whether you're a congresswoman or a stay-at-home mom, your value is not in what you do, it's who you are. So important that we remember that because our world has lost that and the church can't afford to fall into the same trap. Is what it does is it leads to comparison and eventually frustration and despair and disunity. So ladies, discipline your kids. Love the other women in your lives as sisters and, and lead with wisdom and character just like we see here from Deborah. In verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, up which is basically like saying charge. And then he, with sword in hand, charges his men into battle. This is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And then we have verse 15, which matter-of-factly reports, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, if you know anything about military at all, like the military at all, like you're, you have to be thinking right now, wait, why is Sisera getting out of his chariot and fleeing away on foot? He's in the iron chariot. Like, first of all, how does 10,000 iron chariot, or excuse me, 900 iron chariots lose to 10,000 men? Because the iron chariots, this is peak military technology, right? I mean, these are like the stealth fighter jets of their day. And I even like dig, did some digging this, this week to find out like how many men um, would it take to take out one iron chariot? Like how many iron chariots in this, in this age could just crush men? And honestly, I could not find it. I just dug and dug. Couldn't, it was inconclusive. So I can't, I can't impress you with some, some stat. Um, but if you just think about it, like, like wheels spinning with spikes in an iron chariot with a man with armor, like, they're going to mow through people, right? So why is he getting out of his chariot and fleeing on foot? What happened? Well, we saw here that it was the Lord who routed Sisera, right? And if you take a look at chapter 5, verse 4, it tells us how the Lord delivered Sisera into their hands. The earth trembled and the heavens dropped water and the mountains quaked before the Lord. So God sent an earthquake and he sent a deluge of rain from heaven. We have a massive flash flood, okay? And it wasn't during the, the rainy season because otherwise Cicero wouldn't have put, his, put all of his chariots there. He's smarter than that, right? So God worked a miracle because God is sovereign. He is in control of the weather. He completely erased that advantage from Cicero and allowed his people to come in as they are obeying him and, and win the battle. Because that's what God does. So Sisera gets out. He flees on foot. Barak is pursuing. And Sisera is on the run. And he comes to the tent of Jael, the Kenite. And the Kenites were related to the Midianites. We're going to meet them next week when we look at Gideon. But these are not God's people. Um, and as you can probably imagine, if they're living in this area at this time and they're not God's people, these are not particularly nice people either. So Sisera, he's desperate, he's on the run. He makes a pretty grave mistake and he trusts 
this Canaanite woman, woman to take refuge there. And uh, he falls asleep. And I'll just put it this way. He gets murdered in his sleep by jail. So the story ends, matter-of-factly, chapter 4, verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. It also um, ends very artfully in chapter 5. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might and the land had rest for 40 years. So here's the second truth that we learn from this story. Number two, God works through flawed humans to accomplish his purposes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but this is a very, very good truth that we all need to remember. I already pointed out to you that God worked through creation, right? Through his creation and by sending the flood when Cicero was least expecting it. God also works supernaturally at times. And then at times, more often than not, he, he works through people. He uses people, like JL right here. And chapter 5 gives high praise to JL. But we, we, we see here that she was not only like the worst hostess in the history of <laughs> hosting, um, but she probably knew, had an idea of who Cicero was. Because it sounds like she had a clue because in the text, when, when Barak catches up and comes to her camp, she says, hey, here, I will show you the man you're looking for. So maybe she knows that Cicero was the man who made women's lives a living horror story. And it's pretty ironic here that she used at the time which would have been a women's instrument because in this culture, it was the, the women's responsibility to put up the tents. So they would have been using tent pegs and, and stakes to do that. But I think there is a little irony in that, honestly. I think you can see where, how God feels about wicked people perverting his gift of sex to where he allows a woman to use a womanly object to kill the man who treats women as objects, right? You see the irony with that? But JL lied, she deceived him, and then she killed a man in cold blood while he was asleep. What does this show us? It shows us that God will work through flawed humans to accomplish his purposes. He's going, I mean, he also used. Sisera and King Jabin, right? To judge Israel. Like wickedness and evil, God hates it. He will judge it. It will not go unpunished. But God is so powerful, he also uses wicked people and people who do wrong things to still accomplish his will. They're not gonna thwart God's plan at all. It's their responsibility. It's their choice to make. When they make wrong choices, they will suffer the consequences. But God is still in control over all of that. It's humbling for us to think about how God works through flawed humans and flawed people. But I have to just step back and say, what does that mean for you and I? It's good news, right? Because we're flawed too. And even when we make mistakes, God can still work through those. And that's music to my ears. Third truth for you to take away from this story, we're going to have to really pick it up here. Uh, but number three, view life through a theological lens, not just a historical perspective. Chapters four and five both tell the exact same story. It's literally just chapter four is written from the perspective of a historian and it gives account of the just cold, hard facts of a faithful God saving his people. Chapter five is written from the perspective of a poet. And it tells the exact same story through the song of praise. And the author, by using this different angle, truly fills in the gaps of the story with more artistic detail about how the grace of God was working behind the scenes. So the foundational element you have that's, that's different between chapter four and five is that the song of Deborah and Barak is more theological, chapter 5. It looks beneath the surface 
of history and it recalls God's hand that was definitely hinted at in chapter four, but it shows how God's hand was behind it all. I mean, the Lord's name is only mentioned four times in chapter four and three of those four times is when Deborah is speaking to Barak. In chapter five, he is everywhere, almost in every single verse. And in setting Judges 4 and 5 back to back alongside of one another, the author truly highlights how important it is to have not just a historical perspective and chronological order of my life down, I understand my story, but also the theological side of it, the, 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 the next perspective. So yes, we have to keep our feet grounded. We have to understand the history of our story. There is nothing wrong with chronicling that in your mind or even journaling that, uh, writing it down on a page for that matter. Know who you are. Know where you come from. Understand your story. Yes, don't ignore your past. You can look back so you can look forward, absolutely. But you also need to look up. You need to look up to Christ. We can and should live our lives and order our memories historically, like chapter 4, but also theologically, like chapter 5. Not simply recollecting what happened along the way, and, and just, I did this, they did that, but also look up to God and search out what is God doing. This, what this does is it keeps us from becoming prideful in our success. It also keeps us from despairing when we are struggling. It's very important to have this full perspective because the story we tell about our life is so much more than just about us. It's also about him and how he is working through us. I heard someone this week and they were specifically talking to an audience of men um, and he was challenging them to think about the story of their life. And this applies to women and children, this applies to everybody. But he was saying that so many people look at their story and they just get stuck. They just get stuck there. Like they look, they're only looking back and they, and they look back and then they're fearful about what's ahead based off of what happened in the past. And they're just stuck in the story of their life. And it's just this repeated pattern of the same thing over and over again. And as this you know, alpha male was speaking to these, uh, this audience of men about how you can be better with your life, <coughs> What he said was pretty good. He said, what you're forgetting as you're stuck in your story is that you hold the pen. And there's actually still blank pages left in this book. And you can write a new story in the rest of this, the rest of this book. And I like that. But it sounds good. It sounds really inspiring, absolutely. And it sounds like, yeah, like I'm going to write a better story. But let's be realistic for a second. Let's be practical. Like that can motivate and, you in, and inspire you. To, yes, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be, make better choices. And you can write a better story for a while, right? But if you're really honest with yourself and you're not, you're not looking to God, you're not abiding in Christ, you're not looking up to him, you're not changed radically from the inside out with a new heart, you tell me what, what really happens in real life. Think about it. Eventually, the pattern repeats itself. And you can write some new words out for a little while, but the same bad habits come back in. And eventually, it's the same story over and over again. We all love redemption arcs. Of, of, we all do. Of course we do. We like to see characters develop and overcome and grow stronger than we could ever imagine. And just like a father loves watching his kid's personality develop and how parents love to see their children grow into their full potential and do hard things and find themselves, that's God's plan for you. He loves that. But this alpha male motivational speaker, he didn't quite have it all. He was missing a very important piece. He was almost there. He says, pick up the pen and write your own story. It feels good. But why is he almost right and not all the way there? 
Because if it's all on you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and try harder, you will eventually start sounding like the Israelites with the same song, different verse, where it's that pattern of I did good for a while and then I forgot and then I did evil again. Anybody notice that with your story? When God's not in it, it tends to go back to that. You can just fill in the different characters. Eglon, Jabin, Sisera, fill in the blank for the next oppressor. 40 years of rest, 80 years of rest, 40 years of rest, then more failure. Just It's just like you plug in the different names and the different events and your life is just this ongoing struggle. That is people's reality so many times. So holding the pen sounds great. It feels great. It's motivational. But if that's as far as you go, it may, it may have like 10 great chapters. But it's not the answer. It's only half true because you don't just need chapter four. You also need chapter five. You have to have the theological view of what is God doing? What is his plan for my life? What does he want to do through me? You have to look up to Christ and find your hope and your strength in your obedience to him. And when you abide in Christ and you walk with him, he's the one that changes your heart. And when he changes your heart, that changes your motivation. And then you are actually able, through his strength, to write a different story on the next blank page. Because it's not just about you anymore. It's about him through you. So I told you at the outset that I was going to challenge you with this story. That I was going to challenge you in your faith to take the training wheels off and to do hard things, right? Just like Deborah and Barak did here when they, when they eventually won their freedom through the, through the Lord, through the Lord's victory. But in these next few points, I want you to see the key that has to do with unlocking your faith. We see this with Deborah and with Barak, and it's simply one word. It's the word obedience. Obedience to God. Number four, obedience is rooted in worship and trust. Let's not forget how Israel forgot. Was Israel under captivity because Sisera was more crafty and better than them? Of course not. Sisera was awful. But in God's sovereignty, he even he used his wickedness as an instrument of judgment because Israel made disobedient choices and they turned their back on God and they ran away from him. Israel forgot God and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord once Ehud died. And this isn't true all the time, so don't mishear me here, but many times the pain we experience is the consequences of our own selfish decisions. We live in a fallen world. That is our reality. So we are going to experience things from time to time that are not our fault at all. We are truly a victim because we had nothing to do with that and that person did wrong to you. And I'm sorry for that and that grieves God and God will make that right one day. He promises to. But many times, let's be real, many times the problems and the suffering and the issues that we face are the result of our own bad decisions, our disobedience to God. Obedience is the pathway to joy. The victories that you experience are the consequences of you, the choices you make to obey God. And Jesus says that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So obedience to Christ has to come through love. Seeing what Jesus did for you. This is the fifth takeaway. Number five, gratitude, gratitude fuels Obedience. This is seen through the entirety of chapter 5, the, the song of praise with Deborah and Barak. Because when you see how God loves you and how faithful he is and how Jesus gave his life for you, when you see how much grace you have been given, that is the true motivation to love others, right there. Any other motivation will eventually fall short. Being a good person so I can get rewarded, that will take you to a certain, certain degree, right? That'll, that'll take you so far. 
Only understanding that I have been given grace upon grace upon grace. John, the book of John describes it as your grace is like getting poured into a cup. Grace upon grace. And it's just overflowing, right? You ever had a waitress like, like just have a conversation at your table and just like pour your water cup too far and then the water just pours out over it? Like if that just goes on your whole life, just like pour in the cup, overflow, overflow, overflow. Grace upon grace upon grace. That is our faithful God. That's who he is. That's what he gives us. And when your heart is full with that and you start looking up and you start identifying that, you start seeing that, you will be motivated to love because there's an overflow in your heart. Number six, obedience always takes courage. Deborah and Barak both faced, human, humanly speaking, overwhelming odds. And I talked about this. Like, how are they supposed to take out 900 chariots of iron? Those, those, those horses are pulling that iron, that, that iron chariot, 35 to 40 miles per hour. Takes courage to charge into that. And obedience to God always takes a degree of courage. I talked about doing hard things in the introduction. And you know, as an adult, learning how to ride a bike sounds pretty chill, right? For, for as far as hard things go, like, yeah, I wish that was the hardest thing I had to do in my life right now is just go learn how to ride a bike. I haven't done that yet. Let me learn that one. As you get older, as you mature, as you advance in life and you have more and more responsibility, you're going to learn how to do harder and harder things, right? But you have to learn the little things first because God teaches us over and over again, he who is faithful in a little, little will also be faithful in much. If you want to take the training wheels off your faith and actually conquer mountains and do amazing things for God and see him move mountains and be on a front row seat to actually turning the world upside down and seeing your family change and seeing like your relationship with your spouse change, seeing like so many things radically evolve and transform into being restored and renewed. If you want that in your faith, and you don't just want this simple, I show up on Sunday and I feel good about it for two hours and then I move on with my life. If you want a faith that doesn't have the training wheels on it and you want to do hard things with your faith, you have to obey God. You have to step out in courage. You have to put your faith and your trust in Him. It takes courage to obey God when everyone else is sleeping around and doing whatever they desire to do. It takes courage to be different at work and limit your corporate standing to climb that ladder because you know what? I love God more and I love people and I don't want to just run over people. So if you're going to take that approach, are you limiting yourself to some degree? Of course you are. It takes courage to do that. But growing in your faith, it's, it's just like I learned how to ride a bike and now I can learn how to do a trick on my bike. And now I can learn how to do, like, get, have the confidence to get on a skateboard. And now I have confidence to do crazy things on a skateboard. You didn't just get to that point before you learned how to, first of all, take the simple first step, right? So many Christians are literally running around with training wheels on their faith. And as soon as it gets difficult, as soon as there's anything that comes in that's a hindrance, they immediately question God. Well, I don't like that. Why is this happening to me? That's a shallow faith. We have a lot of churches that's as far as they go and the people come and they feel great for a Sunday morning and they don't live the other six days of their life on mission for the glory of God. They don't abide in Christ and have the power of God running through their veins, inspired to love others and to say hard things and to do things that they weren't comfortable with doing before. We need to be a church that is on fire for God, doing hard things through his strength. And that takes courage. Obedience is the pathway to joy. Obedience is the pathway to rest. Obedience is rooted in worship. Obedience builds your trust in God because you see him provide. And that's what makes you truly courageous. Is there not a lot of fake courage out there today? Think about what the world calls courageous compared to what we see from, from God and what he wants us to do. 
We call it, in our world, we call it courageous to do something that's going to give you attention and popularity and privilege. Oh, it's so courageous. In our world, we call good evil and evil good. People think they are courageous when they mindlessly repeat the same talking points that the elites have programmed into their subconsciousness. True courage is doing something through faith that doesn't make sense and no one else is doing and no one else understands why you would even do that. That's what the people of God should be doing because we know him. We know he works in mysterious ways. We know he actually has a plan for us that is so far greater and beyond the simple keeping up with the Joneses. That's boring in comparison to what God has for you. Living for Jesus, to the world's view, does not make any sense at all. Sacrificing your life for his glory, if you don't know him, like what is that? I want my own glory. Barak went in to the battle knowing he wasn't going to get the glory. He knew it was going to someone else. He didn't know who, but he knew it was going to someone else. He did it because he knew he needed to obey God. Deborah worked with him. She challenged him. She got him to that point. He took Deborah with, her, you know, with him to the battle. It's a beautiful story. But here's my question for you. How is God challenging you to take the training wheels off your faith and do the next hard thing? What is it for you? Thankfully, none of us have to go fight Sisera. Yours is probably going to look a little, a little less uh, dangerous than that. But I still don't want to take away from the fact that it's going to be challenging. It's going to take some courage. And you're only going to find that courage when you look up and you don't just stay here on the chapter four. This is all I can do. This is just who I am. This is just my story. I've never been able to do anything like this in my life, David. No, look up to him. He will win the victory. He will do something miraculous through you that you didn't even see coming. So what are you doing right now in your life for eternity? Don't hold back and shuffle your feet as soon as things get inconvenient. The key to all of this is obedience. So what does God have for you to obey right now? It's all about making the next right choice. And when you do that, there is freedom. There is joy. Just like when you've mastered your bike and now you're just riding down the road with not a care in the world, the breeze in your face, the sunshine on your back, and you're not even thinking about it anymore, right? There, there's peace, there's rest, there's joy that comes in that. And most of us can't even remember taking the training wheels off of our bike because once you learn how to do it and once you enjoy it, the ride itself is so much more fun than the pain it was to get there. People have a limited view of their faith and they have never gotten to the point where they're just able to crush it and to enjoy it and to actually enjoy the wind at their face and the sunshine on their back. They can't do that because they've never actually taken the training wheels off. When you do, eventually your memories from the hardship fade because you are enjoying so much more the season of rest and the season of peace that you have found through obedience. I'm going to challenge all of you to take the pen in your hand and ask God, what do you want me to write in this next page? Because we all have blank pages. Some of those pages may have some you know, predictions in them, like I think this may happen. You're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like you, can, you can have an idea. You can have a plan of where that's going. Eventually, there's, there's some empty spots in those pages of the story of your life. What does God want you to write? The seventh and final truth that we need to learn from this story, number seven, is the only hero is God and he always delivers his people. This is why you can with confidence and with joy and with boldness forge ahead right here. Because God is the hero of this story and God is the hero of your story. It's not us. It's not all on you. God, 
what do you want me to write? You have put things in my past. There, there are things that I have learned. There's things that I have struggled through and had tears and agony. Some of you are going through very painful things right now. I've talked to, had a couple conversations this morning already. Of, it's heartbreaking to hear some of the things that y'all are going through. God, how do you want to redeem this? What do you want to come from this that I can't see, but that you know is happening? Don't look at your life simply in black and white like chapter four. God is a poet. He is an artist. He is filling all that in with color. The hero of this story is God. He used the people, the good and the bad, and he saved his people. I don't know what God has for you, but I know every single one of us has a challenge in front of us. I know every single one of us has things that are scary, that are causing anxiety. God loves you. He has a plan for you. Doesn't matter what your title is. Doesn't matter what somebody says you can or cannot do. No, your value is in who God made you to be. Just like a loving father and a parent who looks at their child and they, see, and they see them develop, God knows exactly who he wants you to be. And he doesn't want you to, to cut it short because it's going to be hard. Thanks for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.